Hello, and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Can you see that if Christ has forgiven you, we should do what to those who have hurt us? And the problem is when it hurts, the immediate response is, well, you don't know what they've done to me. And that kind of tells us we don't know what we've done to Christ. At the close of each year, we often take time to look back at the year that's been and then set our hopes on New Year's resolutions and the like. We hope for a better new year. How do we move successfully from one year to the next? There's an invaluable insight that comes from one now past of a practice that is simply called shutting the gate. So simple and yet so powerful. Let's find out as we join Dr. Corbett to explore the concept of shutting the gate. I'm going to do something unusual tonight. I have never preached anyone else's sermon, and I'm going to tonight. And I would have the honoured preacher here tonight, except he's been dead since 1959, so I can't. So what I'm going to do, and I have, whenever I read anything of Borum's, I, I feel like I'm talking with him. Tonight's message is based out of this book called The Silver Shadow. And this was published in 1918. This book has sold in the millions all around the world. And when he first penned this, it appeared in the Hobart Mercury. And uh, he left Hobart in 1916. So he was in Hobart from 1906 to 1916. And he had just been in a really small town in New Zealand, just outside of Dunedin. Are you from the north or south? Both. Both? Oh. <laughs> that must hurt. <laughs> Which, have you, are you, were you near Dunedin? Or? Uh, I lived in Christchurch. Oh, Christchurch, okay. So the major city near Dunedin. Um, and uh, we, we were there not, well, not that long. Well, long enough after the second or third round of uh, earthquakes. It was really sad, actually, to see Christchurch in, in its condition. Anyway, so F.W. Borum was the last disciple of, of a, the man who's known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Borum moved to London from Tunbridge Wells. And he moved to London at about the age of uh, 16. And he came to Christ shortly afterwards. And he says there was nothing. There was, there was no preaching moment. There was no, so it wasn't like some preacher got him. There was there was no you know, huge light going on for him. It just dawned on him that he was a sinner and Jesus was the saviour. And he surrendered his life to Christ. And he went along to a group, I guess, uh, he describes in his biography as uh, something akin to holy rollers. And these were the early Pentecostals in, in London. And he had become convinced that scripture speaks of being, as soon as you become a Christian, of, of identifying with Christ through the waters of baptism. And so that was a big deal for someone who was raised an Anglican. And so he was baptised in water and he says that when he came up out of the water, it was an independent Baptist church, but as he came up out of the water, they, the, the elders came around him, laid hands on him and prayed that he would receive, and I quote, the Holy Ghost. 
You know, prayed that he would, he says, they prayed that I would receive the Holy Ghost. And he said the strangest thing happened to him at that point. He said he actually felt something. And he said for the next few weeks, he describes the sensation as almost like walking on air. And he felt this incredible burden to be able to share with others what Christ could do in their life. And so he became involved with the London City Mission. And the London City Mission would send out people onto the streets to preach. And uh, he volunteered to go as a uh, 17, 18 year old preaching out on the streets. And he, he did that for a few years. He said his very first sermon went for all of seven minutes. And it took him weeks and weeks and weeks to prepare. And he said it was terrible. It was, it was, now he looks at it and he's in you know, he, later on, on the day of his retirement, he said, I, I looked at those notes again with great embarrassment. <laughs> but over time, one of the things that a street preacher has to do is they have to hold the attention of people because no one has to listen to you. And so he learned to be able to preach on the streets in an, an engaging way that people would listen to him. And it so happened that one of the people who was going past where he was preaching on the streets of Clapham was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon heard him and said, this man has the call of God on his life. This young man has the call of God on his life. So he, Spurgeon at that time was pastoring a church of 31,000 members. And they held some seven services over a a weekend. You couldn't go to Metropolitan Tabernacle. You had to buy a ticket. The queues were so large. And Spurgeon got one of his people to go and approach Boreham with a letter of offer. And the letter of offer signed by Spurgeon was, I want to give you a full scholarship, which is board and tuition, into my college called Pastors College to train as a minister of the gospel. And this floored Frank William Borum, one of 11 children. And he, he didn't do anything with it because there was this incredibly emotional pull because he was raised an Anglican. And even though he'd come to realise that baptism by full immersion in water was what he now recognised the Bible taught, by going to that college, it meant he would, becoming, he would be a Baptist. <laughs> and unless you've actually had that, tr- that long history of traditional uh, tribalism in Christianity, it might be difficult for us today where, you know, who cares what the sign on the door is these days. But back then, that was a big deal. And so he was being mentored by an older minister uh, in Hebrew when he was uh, still a teenager. He became fluent in biblical Hebrew and uh, biblical Greek by the, t- by the time he was a teenager. And this older man counselled him that he, he really should prayerfully consider the offer that Spurgeon had given him. And eventually, uh, in a, a year or two went by, and he decided this was God's will for his life. And so he signed the papers that Spurgeon had sent him. He sent them in. Spurgeon got them, and Spurgeon now had to sign them to seal the deal. Spurgeon signed those papers, giving Borum four years 
while full board and tuition in pastor's college, the equivalent of a degree. Spurgeon signed those papers and two days later Spurgeon died. The age of 57, I think. He died from what most people consider to be a stress disorder. If you've ever felt 31,000 people on your shoulders, you might appreciate what kind of stress he was under. He was lampooned every week in the London Times. There were caricatures of him. He was uh, a large man and he was ridiculed for being a large man and he was constantly under media surveillance or attention. Sad. It was sad that he died so young. Prince of Preachers. Uh, while he was considering the offer from Spurgeon, he was a part of Metropolitan Tabernacle and Boreham was one of the, uh, I'm not sure if he was a pallbearer or one of the young men that attended at the funeral. And I have the privilege of having many of uh, Boreham's mementos and books and things in which he has placed his ticket to Spurgeon's funeral in one of the books. And anyway, this is, I'm introducing to you Frank William Boreham, who originally wrote this message, and you'll, you'll get to hear this message, and I'm, I'm going to present it in a way that I trust is a little bit creative, but I, I need you to know this. It's, it's Boreham, <coughs> all of his, his books were his sermons, and at a time when people thought Christianity had had its day, and if they think you know, it's had its day now, even back then, Boreham was, was saddened just by how much people considered Christianity to be done and dusted. So one of the things he did was he, he wrote his sermons out. And these sermons, in his biography and also in his, the, the book by his biographer, which he would not allow to be published until he had died. In fact, he told the, the, uh, the biographer to wait two years after he had died because he said by then people will have completely forgotten about me and no one will buy your book uh, which is not true um, but he he wrote these sermons out and he says in his biography or and, and his biographer also noted that people were often surprised that when they heard Boreham he preached with such passion he was so engaging his storytelling style which he was criticized for was so easy to listen to that they assumed he was just almost making it up on the spot until they read his essays published in his books and they realized that he shared these sermons word for word including the poems and the hymn verses referenced in here he memorized every word before he preached it and when he preached it he didn't use notes and he didn't use notes because of a tragic episode that happened one day and that tragic episode happened in Collins Street Baptist Church in Melbourne. And that episode was he had a set of loose papers on the pulpit that he was using uh, as a guest speaker there. And someone opened the back doors and a wind came in and, and they blew all over the floor. The problem was no one knew, not even his family knew, particularly his grandchildren, obviously his wife did, but, not, but, but his own children were very unaware and his grandchildren were completely unaware 
that when Boram was 15 years of age, he was working as a clerk in a brickworks and a signalman and he went out on a foggy day and there were double signal things and the signalman was here and Boren was standing in front of the other one and as the train came past to, to switch the things the signalman went forth and hit Boren and threw him under the train and he was dragged under that train 50 metres and he ended up losing the lower part of his right leg. Uh, Ali, I don't know what surgical techniques were back in the 1870s or that would have been the 1880s, but Borum says they were very crude. In fact, he got septicemia and he, his life hung in the balance for nine months. The, the doctors actually sent word to his parents. Uh, they sent a, 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 I'm going to use a word, a telegram. <laughs> in fact, they, they sent a telegram boy around and that was before there was emails for all those born at a certain year. And the telegram boy came around with the, with the telegram to his mother from the, the doctors at the hospital saying, prepare immediately for the worse. Borum's mother got that message and went straight down to Emmanuel Church, an Anglican church, which became a... It was a non, what's called a non-conformist Anglican church. And she went into that chapel. And she, like Hannah, prayed to God for her child, her son. And this is her prayer. God, if you save his life, you can have him. I will let him go. He will be completely yours. 15 years of age, Boromons at that time. She got up, she went back home, there was a knock at the door, there was another telegram boy saying, he's just made a remarkable recovery. It was a few years later when Borum had done two years at Jenny's four-year course at, at Pastors College that Metropolitan Tabernacle said, we can't just have visiting speakers filling in for Mr Spurgeon, we have to get someone in. So let's get his son back from New Zealand. Thomas Spurgeon was the Baptist superintendent of New Zealand. Let's get him back. So Thomas Spurgeon came back and Thomas Spurgeon was charged by the little town of Mosgiel, thousand people, all Scottish immigrants. And they said, would you find us a wee minister? <laughs> and so Thomas Spurgeon came back and he said, yes, I, I'm, I'm here to, you know, Let's steady the ship at Metropolitan Tabernacle, the largest church in England, the largest church in London easily, in a place called Elephant and Castle. That church, by the way, was destroyed during Second World War. Been rebuilt, still a large church. Anyway, and so when, when Thomas Spurgeon came back, everyone at the college said there's clearly one standout, and that's Frank William Boreham, Frank Boreham. And so the college then was about to call Borum in. But meanwhile, that day, Borum was asked by another student, just this off-the-cuff question, if you could go anywhere and serve God anywhere, where would you go? He'd already asked Hudson Taylor, can I serve with you in China? What I haven't told you is that he lost that leg. He recovered. 
he, but he lost that leg and he wore a prosthetic limb and he always, he had a, a cane for the rest of his life. I have his walking sticks in my office. And the day he recovered, he came home as a 15-year-old. He walked out his gate and he slipped over and he broke his femur in this leg and he would break his femur another four times throughout his life. The last time was down at a place called Wedge Bay, White Sands in Tasmania. So his leg was very fragile and on that day in Collins Street Baptist when those notes fell off, he was not prepared to even attempt to bend down because he couldn't. And he said, he vowed to himself, I will never use notes again. And so he, he used plyboard and he had this code on there and I've, I've got some of those and I'm full, I'd turn them up and look and whatever they were prompted him to remember sermons like this one, shut, please shut this gate, um, word for word. Just amazing. Anyway, Borum was asked by this random student, where would you go? Where would you go? And he thought, well, I can't go to China because Hudson Taylor told me China's no place for an invalid missionary. And so he told this student that day, because you've got to appreciate New Zealand was settled in 1850 by Europeans. It's really young. In 1880, it's 1890, it's still a relatively young country. So he said, I'd go to New Zealand, the land of opportunity. Really? Why would you go there? Because it's the land of opportunity. <laughs> I just think this is the place where you, you could put the gospel right into the fabric, into the seedbed of a country. And he was right. Then, that afternoon, he got called in and Thomas Spurgeon put it to him, we'd like to send you to New Zealand. He said, I'll pray about it. He went out of that room and guess who he went looking for? <laughs> that student. He said, you knew, didn't you? And he said, I knew what? You knew what they were going to ask me. Well, what did they ask you? You didn't know? I didn't know what. <laughs> they just asked me to go to New Zealand. So he wrote to his mother back in Tunbridge Wells and said, I've been asked to go to New Zealand. She wrote back and said, you cannot go. <laughs> Mother's attachment to her own son. And she sent that letter. And the moment she sent that letter, she remembered that prayer in that church when he was 15 and she wrote back the next day and apologized and said you go you go Boreham was 24 years of age having done two years of his four-year degree and he went to New Zealand he describes his arrival in New Zealand sailing from Wellington to Christchurch and from Christchurch, he caught the rail to uh, Mosgiel, Dunedin to Mosgiel. He said when he arrived at the Mosgiel station, there was a group of men who had faces like granite. <laughs> Big beards. Ach, new <laughs> type men. Hardened Scots. And he said, but he soon discovered that they had hearts of gold. And most of his books have some telling of some story that people have criticised Boreham for, for being way too romantic. 
In other words, he paints a very idealistic picture of what happened when he was in New Zealand. As I shared this with you, I want you to notice that Boreham doesn't sound like he's preaching. He sounds like he's telling a story. Because we do not live at an age when people are as familiar with the Bible as they were then, I'm going to introduce to you a couple of scriptures in which Boreham had grounded this story. So this is called, I'm calling this Please Shut the Gate. The name of the essay and the name of his sermon was actually Please Shut This Gate. And you'll see this in a moment. The backdrop, as you'll see, is a, is a golf course. And this will become clear in a moment. And Borum is going to be helping people in this essay, which was originally, as I said, published in the Hobart Mercury. It was written for an audience that was not Christian. That's why you're not going to find scripture and chapter and verse through this. And it, it's dealing with hurts and dealing with pain and dealing with things like this. I want to preface this by, by giving you some questions to think about before we have a look at this. Here's the, the first question. I want you to think about it. These three things. In order, what are three things you are thankful for Christ having done for you? This is a question I'm prepared to receive your verbal feedback on. The next question, question two, I won't because I don't want to embarrass anyone. But could, would someone like to offer one thing that you're thankful that Christ has done for you? Gordon? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. He's forgiven you. Great. Someone else? Unconditional love. Beautiful. What's another thing? The gift of grace. He's been gracious to us. Wonderful. Anyone else? He sought you out and saved you. And how does that make you feel? Relieved? And favoured, which is the word grace. Here's the supplementary question to this one. Why are you so thankful about the three things that you picked? Why are you? Let's, let's just assume one person's picked these ones. Um, what was your word again? For, forgiven, loved and... Christ. Those three things, why, why, hopefully you'd have an answer why you would be so grateful for these things. And I hope we are. I hope we're all grateful for these things. And I hope maybe our answer is because without them, we have no hope. We are damned for eternity. We are lost for eternity. We have no reason to get up in the morning and keep going. All right, here's the next question, and I run the risk of causing people to become overly introspective, that is, just thinking about their own life and their own condition. That's not my aim tonight, please. Hopefully you can see where I'm going with this, because it relates to this story that Boreham is about to tell. In order, how have you been hurt or disappointed by others? Now, I don't want you to... I don't want you to yell that out because it could be that I've hurt you and I just don't want to know. <laughs> but I want to pose it this way because I want some feedback. Can you think of ways that people have been hurt by others? And if so, what might they be? 
exclusion, feeling rejected. You're excluded from things. And they say rejection is one of the most painful things you can experience. June. Abused. In what way? Physically, emotionally, sexually. Yes, absolutely, that hurts. Here's the supplementary question to this question. Has any of this hurt happened to you by another Christian? I'm not looking for, don't, you can just look like you're playing poker right now. <laughs> but, but I'm going to hazard a guess and say, for many of you, yes. And as we consider what Mr. Borum has to say in a moment, I want you to consider that in life, people are people. Whether they're going to heaven or not, people can be people and people can hurt us and people can disappoint us and here's my third question how do your answers to question one what you're thankful to Christ for and question two how do your answers to question one remedy those things that you experienced as you identified in question two can you can you see how there's a connection can you see that if Christ has forgiven you we should do what to those who have hurt us. And the problem is when it hurts, the immediate response is, well, you don't know what they've done to me. And that kind of tells us we don't know what we've done to Christ. So I'm not trying to be flippant about this. I'm trying to help us to understand the riches of Christ's grace toward us and that it's not just theory it has a practical outworking. All right, so this is called The Silver Shadow. And his essay opens up, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Chrysieth, I'm not sure, I don't speak Welsh. But this is Welsh, it's in Wales. And it opens up on a golf course. And I've got a picture here of the golf course. It's kind of important for you to appreciate what this golf course looks like. It's surrounded by cattle, <laughs> sheep and cows and the like. So if you've got this picture in mind, apparently it's a world-famous golf course in Wales. So let's have a look at this, and, and this text is probably going to be a bit small for you. You might be able to, I know, you might be able to see that. So however this is said, it, it, it was at Chrysieth, and Mr Lloyd George was playing golf. It happened that after a round... He and a friend had to cross some fields in which cattle were grazing. I was so eager to catch every word that fell from Mr Lord George's lips, explains his companion, that I failed to close one of the gates through which we passed. But Mr Lloyd George noticed it, paused, went back and carefully shut the latched gate. They resumed their walk. Do you remember old Dr. Of, asked Mr. Lloyd George, mentioning a local worthy not long deceased. When he was on his deathbed, a clergyman went to him and asked him if there was anything he would like to say or any message he wanted to deliver. No, answered the doctor, except that through life I think I've always closed gates behind me. Interesting message for someone dying on a deathbed. There is, I fancy, says Dr. Borum, a good deal in that. I had in my congregation in Mosgiel 
a little old man of singular serenity of countenance. Oh, it's just beautiful words. Just, just as countenance. No one's ever described me as having a serenity of, or a singular serenity of countenance. No, surprisingly, no one's ever said that. But anyway, uh, and sweetness of disposition. Nothing seemed to ruffle his faith or disturb the perfect tranquility of his spirit. One evening in the early autumn, he came down to the manse to bring me a basket of freshly gathered fruit. We sat for a while on the veranda chatting. It was an hour for confidences. And he opened his heart to me. I asked him how he accounted for the calm that seemed a perpetual rebuke to our fretfulness and worry. He would not at first admit that he possessed any features that distinguished him from the rest of us. But I pressed my point and at length he became more communicative. Well, I'll tell you this, he observed. I've always made it a rule. When I've shut the door, I've shut the door. So Borum's 24, this older gentleman. How would you respond if an older, wiser, sagely man said that to you? Well, That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to the website findingtruthmatters.org and selecting Shutting the Gate from our online store. As we've heard tonight, shutting the gate has less to do with keeping the cows in and more to do with how we process our life's decisions and whether we let them plague our future. Some incredible and invaluable insights from Dr Corbett inspired by one F.W. Borum. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.